The bottom line is, Texas thought it could go at it alone and built a system that ignored climate change. It was not what's called resilient. And now Texas is paying the price. I hope they learn the lesson. When we build power, when we build anything now, we have to take into account that climate change is real or people will be caught the way the people in Texas were. Today, we'll talk a bit about the crisis in Texas and its relationship to climate change. Welcome back to Acclimated. Thank you for listening. One aspect of the discourse around the uh, extremely cold weather that parts of the U.S. experienced over the past few weeks has been a focus on uh, whether or not this cold snap can be linked to global warming. Some politicians and activists have asserted the connection as a way to uh, advocate for projects like the Green New Deal or other infrastructure spending. Scientists have publicly debated the issue, uh, and I imagine that a lot of people listening to a show about the politics of climate change would understandably assume that that's, that's what I'm going to do right now. But I'm going to instead do something kind of irritating here when discussing the relationship between climate change and the extreme cold in the, in the U.S. over the past couple of weeks. I'm going to say it's complicated. So there's sort of two reasons uh, for why I'm going down this route. One is that the science on this specific issue is, uh, is still developing to some extent, and I think that's worth recognizing. And while the science here is important, uh, the larger point I'd like to discuss during this episode is, is really not about the science, uh, which for climate change as a general phenomenon is uh, obviously entirely settled. The larger topic here is whether or not being able to attribute any particular weather event to climate change is politically relevant, uh, and I'm not convinced that it always is. Now, of course, linking the warming climate uh, more broadly to political action is essential, but I think it's worth considering what's being implied by political messaging when there's an assertion that a particular uh, weather emergency is definitively linked to global warming. Is there an implication here that prevention of similar events in the future is possible? That's that's a tough claim to make, especially given how much warming has already occurred uh, and is still likely at the moment. Now, we can and, of course, should prevent things from getting even worse, but preventing events similar to ones that already exist is something a little bit different. If and when attribution for certain events does become conclusive, then that could be yet another tool for evaluating the failures of governments to mitigate warming, uh, and, and it could be useful in that sense. But in terms of understanding how to be better prepared for weather disasters that are already happening and may even be evolving, or understanding how governments should build resilience and not abandon people in a crisis, or understanding where the money and resources to do these things should come from, you know, in those situations, the question of whether or not a specific event is linked to climate change seems not as relevant. The overall warming trends are obvious, uh, and the work that needs to be done is already clear. The urgency of the crisis can be emphasized without really needing to establish a direct link between the weather and global warming uh, in messaging. Now, my background is not in the atmospheric sciences, so I'm going to try and be careful before making any definitive statements on the matter of severe cold and climate change. Uh, So I'll refer to some of the contemporary conversations about this uh, to illustrate where I'm coming from. 
The extreme cold that much of the U.S. experienced recently is linked to a feature of the atmosphere called the polar vortex, which you may have already heard a whole lot about. The polar vortex is a feature that forms in the stratosphere every winter in both the northern and southern hemispheres between about 20 and 80 kilometers above the surface. It's a circulation of seriously strong winds that go around the pole in the middle atmosphere. In a way, it's the largest storm in the world, the size of a continent, that naturally forms every year, rotating around the pole. Just to reiterate, this isn't at the surface. You are not living through the polar vortex, or in the polar vortex, or in the time of the polar vortex. The polar vortex is a big zonal circulation in the stratosphere that forms every year. So what does it have to do with weather at the surface? Well, every now and again, about seven times every decade on average since the 1950s, it tears itself apart in an event called a sudden stratospheric warming. But crudely speaking, in the aftermath of a sudden stratospheric warming, the mean latitude of the jet stream moves further south. The jet stream, if you remember, is the narrow, fast-moving river of air in the lower atmosphere, which separates freezing polar air from warmer mid-latitude air. The jet stream waves and wiggles around, and whether it's north or south of you largely determines if you experience warm or cold weather at the surface. After the polar vortex experiences a sudden warming and splits apart, the jet stream moves further south, and the wiggles in it get bigger. That allows for freezing arctic air to spill further south than normal, and we see the kind of extreme cold in the mid-latitudes that we've seen in Europe, and to a much greater extent in America. Some researchers argue that global warming is affecting the behavior of the polar vortex, leading to more severe bouts of cold weather. Here's the thinking. As the planet warms, the poles are warming a lot faster than the mid-latitudes, so places like the U.S. So the difference in temperature, or gradient, between the North Pole and, say, the Midwest is much less extreme than it used to be. That causes the polar vortex to weaken. And this makes our jet stream, which is at a lower altitude than the polar vortex, weaker and wavier. And that drives our weather in the United States. But this is not a consensus view at the moment. Uh, so this clip is from a short story that PBS did on the topic, which featured a few different researchers voicing their perspective on it. But this is still a hotly debated hypothesis. I think that the jump between saying that by slackening that temperature contrast from the um, mid-latitudes to the pole, that doesn't necessarily mean the jet stream is going to become wavier. It's certainly played out this year, just like the hypothesis says, and last year too. It looks like it's global warming, but I don't think anyone yet has enough data to nail that to the ground. All of these clips are from 2019, the last time the polar vortex was a major topic in the media, but the past two years haven't dramatically changed the situation. There's been uh, a lot of pretty serious debate around this on Twitter among researchers um, over the past couple of weeks, some observers accusing others of irresponsibility for making claims prematurely, others saying it's irresponsible not to recognize that this is what's occurring. You know, so it remains a, a contentious topic. Now, I want to be careful here as this discourse can be exploited by climate change deniers. Uh, it already has been over the past few decades and recently as well with regard to Texas. So it's crucial to be upfront and say that a lack of immediate scientific consensus around any individual weather event doesn't change the fact that the evidence for global warming itself is irrefutable. The warming trends are undeniable regardless of the debates happening around an event like this. Uh, and I'm certainly not interested in, you know, quote unquote, depoliticizing science or anything like that. I don't think that's possible, honestly. And uh, I think efforts to remain politically neutral have done a major disservice to the public discourse on climate change over the last 30 years. So that's, that's not really my concern here. 
My concern really, I think, has to do with the way that political rhetoric around taking action on climate change sometimes puts this kind of science to use. Now, obviously, there's a significance to being able to talk about contemporary circumstances and their relationship to uh, political realities. There is a cause and effect relationship between the political status quo of the recent past and climate change. That's important to assert. But how those discussions happen, like what kinds of connections they imply about action on climate change and the climate people will have to live with in the future, that's important as well. And so I think it's worth mentioning that extreme weather did not originate with climate change. Climate change worsens a great deal of it, absolutely. Uh, it makes extreme weather more intense, more frequent, uh, and that trend will strengthen as the planet warms further. But extreme weather was part of the planet's climate dynamics long before the burning of fossil fuels for industrial use led to unchecked global warming. I don't bring this up to downplay the impacts of global warming at all. Uh, in fact, I think even today, most discussions around global warming in the public sphere by pundits and politicians seriously understate the threat that it poses. Extreme weather events getting worse is already harrowing enough, but climate change is a wholesale ecological crisis that threatens communities across the planet with uh, much more than that. I bring this topic of, of rhetoric up because my concern is related to um, how political projects frame these types of events in their messaging and therefore how they may at times be promising things they, they can't really hope to deliver. I'm wondering if by continually alleging that all extreme weather events result directly from climate change, there might be a gradual development of this impression that extreme weather itself as a natural phenomenon is principally a result of climate change rather than something that climate change intensifies. And so the risk here is uh, an implication that by addressing climate change, maybe through decarbonization or, or even geoengineering, which is a topic we'll discuss in an upcoming episode, there's an implication that we can prevent these kind of events from occurring at all. Now, this might be an unintentional side effect of discussions that focus on attributing specific events to climate change and then having that attribution anchor these discussions for an extended period. But I do also think there is uh, occasionally political messaging out there related to certain projects, like the Green New Deal is, is one example. And some of that messaging more intentionally implies this. I'm thinking of situations like those after uh, a major weather event where stories about flooding or other impacts are shared along with the comment to the effect of, you know, this is what a future without a Green New Deal looks like. The suggestion here, I, I think, is that with a Green New Deal, these things might not happen. Uh, but this is, as I mentioned, a really difficult claim to make about extreme weather in an absolute sense. And what it sort of feels like is that underpinning this type of discourse is a perspective on the environment that sees it as something that can be uh, like corralled or, or even controlled in some way, given the right inputs. The geoengineering would be among the most extreme examples of that perspective. Certainly, we need to decarbonize rapidly for a whole host of reasons. Uh, and one of those is that by doing so, we can prevent so many of these events from getting worse and being more damaging in the longer term. That feels, I think, a little bit different than suggesting that flooding itself or hurricanes or heat waves or cold waves can be avoided entirely by reversing the warming trend. This gets back to something discussed on earlier episodes, which is how climate change and its responses are often discussed in hypotheticals or in the sense of getting a preview or a glimpse of the future with some extreme weather event. Uh, and this is true in some sense, but these events are not just previews of the future, right? They're also the present. They're already reality. Extreme rainfall events and hurricanes devastating heat waves. These kinds of things can't really be undone in the way that is, I think, occasionally implied. They have always affected human societies, uh, and they're getting more dangerous, but they're already here, and, and they're already very dangerous. But that means they can also be prepared for. This is partly why the situation in Texas is so infuriating. The weather that impacted Texas uh, and its threats to the energy infrastructure there uh, were not really a surprise to the government in either the short term or long term. Uh, the state had obviously seen the forecasts for severe cold weather in the days leading up to it, 
And then beyond that, 10 years ago in 2011, there was um, an unusually harsh cold snap. And afterwards, the federal government issued a study that warned the state that its energy infrastructure was not sufficiently prepared to deal with extreme cold weather and that it should address this. In doing so, the government referred back to a previous bout of extreme cold that occurred in 1989. So as much as this is about weather and climate, it's really also about governmental failure, um, logistically, morally, all of that. And it's through that lens that I think we can talk about how it relates to climate change without even really needing to bother focusing on whether or not any specific event is indisputably tied to global warming. This experience is indicative of how federal and state governments deal with extreme weather currently and historically. It's indicative of how utility providers and their investors and other private interests reap enormous profits off of um, profound preventable tragedy. It's a nightmare, and there's currently little to suggest any significant efforts to change it. But extreme weather events of all kinds will become more intense and more frequent in the future, so these failures will become more frequent unless changes are made. The fact is that much of the infrastructure in the U.S. is not adequately prepared for current environmental realities, let alone those of a warmer planet. That's a crisis on its own that needs to be addressed, or it'll only exacerbate the problems of the future. The Earth's climate system is complicated, and so even if rapid decarbonization were to take place over the next few years, it would likely take decades before the benefits of that reversal would start to manifest in terms of uh, impacts on things like weather patterns. And due to the enormous amount of greenhouse gases that have been combusted, the rapid rate of combustion, and the long duration that some of them stay in the atmosphere, it's likely that some of the changes to the atmosphere we're seeing develop now will be permanent, uh, at least on a human timescale. This is without even getting into other ecological impacts, like extinctions, or uh, impacts on oceans, or any number of other things. So resiliency is really crucial here, I think, which involves acknowledging this reality, um, including the destructive potential of extreme weather events, acknowledging that without decarbonization measures, these things will get worse going forward, and having robust preparations and responses for them. That means ensuring availability and reliability of energy, shoring up the grid's defenses, but also acknowledging that there will be situations where, where temporary outages happen. So prioritizing security, safety, food, housing, all these things to ensure that people can make it through the most difficult and damaging parts of these events without risk. That is something that Green New Deal proponents have advocated for, so I don't want to misrepresent that at all. Um, it's part of the proposals that I've read and heard about. AOC has emphasized it over the years and did so in relation to Texas recently as well. So I guess my own apprehension relates to focusing too much of the conversation uh, on attribution of weather events to climate change and suggesting prevention through uh, warming mitigation efforts. Over time, I think this could inhibit some of the recognition that's needed about the state of the planet's climate system right now, the trajectory it's on, and what that implies for how communities should build and prepare. I want to hopefully try and distinguish this from a perspective that's uh, sometimes referred to as uh, deep adaptation, which sort of argues that it's uh, effectively too, too late to mitigate global warming because things are on a path towards civilizational collapse and that really, really can't be changed. Uh, so the best strategy is to just accept that and prepare societies for surviving those circumstances. I don't think that's the case. I think decarbonization and, and broader environmental rehabilitation efforts are absolutely essential. Um, but I don't think it's an either or thing uh, as far as resiliency is concerned. I think it's a both and. But being truly resilient means facing some, some difficult truths. And I think that probably requires rethinking the relationship between nature and society that currently informs so much policy and investment. So not seeing nature as something external that people take resources from um, and not building without regard to local climatic and ecological conditions. The warming trend has been so strong for such a long time that there's, there's no reason to hesitate about asserting 
that climate change is part of, uh, you know, observable material reality. And incidentally, I'm, I'm not sure that being able to definitively prove a relationship between any particular event and climate change would convince uh, any denialist politicians to change their mind. I don't think that's really the, the point or the purpose of the scientific work anyway. Um, that research and debate is critical regardless. But the role that this debate plays in political communications and then what those communications suggest to people who are concerned about where things are and where they're headed, I think all that's um, very much worth considering as well. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.